17. Hay purchased were not only a great aid to the government in prosecuting the war, but have been of distinct benefit to the race in the establishing of savings funds among many who never were thrifty before. Thousands have been started on the road to prosperity by the business ideas inculcated in that manner. Their donations to the Red Cross, the YMCA and kindred groups were exceptionally generous, an organization which did an immense amount of good and which was conducted almost entirely by Negro patriots, although they had a number of white people as officers and advisors, was the Circle for Negro War Relief, which had its headquarters in New York City, at a great meeting at Carnegie Hall, November 2, 1918. The Circle was addressed by the late Theodore Roosevelt. On the platform also as speakers were Emma J. Scott, Irvin Cobb, Marcel Misht, French High Commissioner to the United States, Dr. George E. Ames, Director of Negro Economics, Department of Labor, Mrs. Otta B. Thorns, Superintendent of Nurses at Lincoln Hospital, and Drive W.E.B. Du Bois, who presided. Mr. Roosevelt reminded his hearers that when he divided the Nobel Peace Prize money among the war charities he had awarded to the Circle for Negro War Relief a sum equal to those assigned to the YMCA the Knights of Columbus, and like organizations, I wish to congratulate you, Mr. Roosevelt said, upon the dignity and self-restraint with which the Circle has stated its case in its circulars, it is put better than I could express it when your officers say, they. The Negroes like the boys at the front and in the camps to know that there is a distinctly colored organization working for them. They also like the people at home to know that such an organization, although started and maintained with a friendly cooperation from white friends, is intended to prove to the world that colored people themselves can manage war relief in an efficient, honest and dignified way, and so bring honor to their race. The greatest work the colored man can do to help his race upward, continued Mr. Roosevelt is through his or her own person to show the true dignity of service. I see in the list of your vice presidents and also of your directors the name of Colonel Charles Young, and that reminds me that if I had been permitted to raise a brigade of troops and go to the other side, I should have raised for that brigade two colored regiments, one of which would have had all colored officers, and the colonel of that regiment was to have been Colonel Charles Young. One of the officers of the other regiment was to have been Hamfish. He is now an officer of the 15th, the regiment of Negroes which Mr. Cobb so justly has praised, and when Ham Fish was offered a chance for promotion with a transfer to another command, I am glad to say he declined with thanks, remarking that he guessed he'd stay with the sunburned Yankees. A guest of honor at the meeting was Needham Roberts, who won his Cry Daguerre in conjunction with Henry Johnson. The cheering of the audience stopped proceedings for a long time when Mr. Roosevelt arrived and shook hands with Roberts. Many nice things were said at the meeting, commented the New York Age, but the nicest of all was the statement that after the war the Negro over here will get more than a sip from the cup of democracy. One of the splendid activities of the circle was in the providing of an emergency relief fund for men who were discharged or sent back, as in the case of Needham Roberts, on account of sickness or injuries. Many a soldier who was destitute on account of his back pay having been held up was temporarily relieved provided with work or sent to his home through the agency of the circle. While the war was in progress the circle attended to a variety of legal questions for the soldiers, distributed literature, candy and smokes to the men going to the war and those at the front, visited and ministered to those in hospitals, looked after their correspondence and did the myriad helpful things which other agencies were doing for white soldiers, including relief in the way of garments, food, medicine and money for the families and dependents of soldiers. 
The organization had over three score units in different parts of the country. They engaged in the same activities which white women were following in aid to their race. Here is a sample clipped from one of the bulletins of the circle, on the semi-tropical island of St. Helena. S.C. The native islanders have, in times past, been content to busy themselves in their beautiful cotton fields or in their own little palmetto-shaded houses, but the war has brought to them as to the rest of the world broader vision, and now, despite their very limited resources, 71 of them have formed Unit Number 29 of the circle. They not only do war work, but they give whatever service is needed in the community. The members knit for the soldiers and write letters to St. Helena boys for their relatives. During the influenza epidemic the unit formed itself into a health committee in cooperation with the Red Cross and did most effective work in preventing the spread of the disease. Similar and enlarged activities were characteristic of the units all over the nation. They made manifest to the world the Negro's generosity and his willingness in so far as lies in his power to bear his part of the burden of helping his own race. After the war the units of the circle did not grow weary. Their inspiration to concentrate was for the relief of physical suffering and need, to assist existing organizations in all sorts of welfare work. As they had helped soldiers and soldiers' families, they proposed to extend a helping hand to a working girls, children, invalids and all Negroes deserving aid to the lasting glory of the race and the efficient self-sacrificing spirit of the men engaged was the wonderful work of the Negro Young Men's Christian Association among the soldiers of this country and overseas. Someday a book will be written dealing adequately with this phase of war activity. The best writers of the race will find in it a theme well worthy of their finest talents. The subject can be touched upon only briefly here. To the untiring efforts and great ability of Drive J. Moorland, Senior Secretary of the Negro Men's Department of the International Committee, with his Corps of Capable Assistants at Washington belongs the great credit of having organized and directed the work throughout the war. Not a serious complaint has come from any quarter about the work of the YMCA workers, not a penny of money was wrongfully diverted and literally not a thing has occurred to mar the record of the organization. Nothing but praise has come to it for the noble spirit of duty, goodwill and aid which at all times characterized its operations. The workers sacrificed their pursuits and pleasures, their personal affairs and frequently their remuneration times innumerable they risked their lives to minister to the comfort and well-being of the soldiers. Some deeds of heroism stand forth that rank along with those of the combatants. The splendid record achieved is all the more remarkable and gratifying when the extensive and varied personnel of the service is taken into consideration. No less than 55 Y-meter-CA centers were conducted in cantonments in America, presided over by 300 Negro secretaries. Fourteen additional secretaries served with student army training corps units in our colleges. Sixty secretaries served overseas, making a grand total of 374 y CA secretaries doing war work. Excellent buildings were erected in the cantonments here and the camps overseas, which served as centers for uplifting influences, meeting the deepest needs of the soldiers' life. In the battle zones were the temporary huts where the workers resided placed as near the front lines as the military authorities could permit. Many times the workers went into the most advanced trenches with the soldiers, serving them tobacco, coffee, chocolate, etc. and doing their utmost to keep up spirits and fighting morale. Much of the uniform good discipline and behavior attributed to the Negro troops undoubtedly was due to the beneficial influence of the Y men and women. As an example of the way the work was conducted it is well to describe a staff organization in one of the buildings. It was composed of a building secretary, who was the executive, a religious work secretary, 
who had charge of the religious activities, including personal work among the soldiers, Bible class and religious meetings, an educational secretary, who promoted lectures, educational classes and used whatever means he had at hand to encourage intellectual development, and a physical secretary, who had charge of athletics and various activities for the physical welfare of the soldiers. He worked in closest relationship with the military officers and often was made responsible for all the sports and physical activities of the camp. Then there was a social secretary, who promoted all the social diversions, including entertainments, stunts and motion pictures, and a business secretary, who looked after the sales of stamps, postcards and such supplies as were handled, and who was made responsible for the proper accounting of finances. The secretaries were either specialists in their lines or were trained until they became such. Some idea of their tasks and problems, and of the tact and ability they had to use in meeting them, may be gained by a contemplation of the classes with which they had to deal. The selective draft assembled the most remarkable army the world has ever seen. Men of all grades from the most illiterate to the highly trained university graduate messed together and drilled side by side daily. There were men who had grown up under the best of influences and others whose environment had been 370th or vicious, all thrown together in a common cause, wearing the same uniform and obeying the same orders. The social diversions brought out some splendid talent. A great feature was the singing. It was essential that the secretary should be a leader in this and possessed of a good voice. These were not difficult to find, as the race is naturally musical and most of them sing well. Noted singers were sent to sing for the boys, but it is said that frequently the plan of the entertainment was reversed, as they requested the privilege of listening to the boys sing. A wonderful work was done by, why, secretaries among the illiterates. Its fruits are already apparent and will continue to multiply. They found men who hardly knew their right hand from their left. Others who could not write their names are said to have wept with joy when taught to master the simple accomplishment. Many a poor illiterate was given the rudiments of an education and started on the way to higher attainments. Headquarters of the overseas work was at Paris, France, and was in charge of E.C. Carter, formerly senior student secretary in America, and when war was declared, held the position of national secretary of India. Much of the credit for the splendid performance of the Y workers abroad belonged to him and to his able aide, Dr. John Hope, president of Morehouse College, Atlanta, G.A. The latter went over in August, 1918, as a special overseer of the Negro YMCA. Three distinguished Negro women were sent over as, Y, hostesses, with a secretarial rating. During the war, their work was so successful that 20 additional women to serve in the same capacities were sent over after the close of hostilities. They were to serve as hostesses, social secretaries and general welfare workers among the thousands of Negro soldiers who had been retained there with the Army of Occupation and the Service of Supply. The first Negro woman to go abroad in the YMCA service was Mrs. Helen Curtis of 208 134th Street, New York, in May, 1918. For a number of years she had been a member of the Committee of Management of the Colored Women's Branch of the YMCA and had assisted at the Camp Opton Hostess House. Her late husband, James L. Curtis, was Minister Resident and Consul General for the United States to Liberia. Mrs. Curtis lived in Monrovia, Liberia, until her husband's death there. She had also lived in France, where she studied domestic art for two years, being a fluent speaker of the French language. Her appointment was highly appropriate, 
So successful was the appointment of Mrs. Curtis that another Negro secretary in the person of Mrs. Eddie Hunt on a 575 Green Avenue, Brooklyn, NY followed the next month. Her husband was for many years senior secretary of the International Committee of the YMCA Negro Men's Department, and her own work had always been with the organization. A short time later Miss Catherine Johnson of Greenville, Ohio, followed in the wake of Mrs. Curtis and Mrs. Hunton. She is a sister of Dr. Johnson of Columbus, Ohio, appointed early in 1919 minister to Liberia. No less successful at home than abroad was the work of the YMCA among the Negroes in cantonments and training camps. It is known that the services rendered by the association to the officers training camp at Fort Des Moines had much to do with making that institution such a remarkable success. From that time on comment was frequent that the best work being done by the association in many of the camps was done by Negro secretaries. The heroic exploit of Professor Cook, the Y secretary, which secured him a recommendation for the Distinguished Service Cross, is mentioned elsewhere. It was only equaled by the valiant performance of A.T. Banks of Dayton, Ohio, a Negro, Y, Secretary who went over the top with the 368th Infantry, Secretary Banks, during the action, tarried to give aid to a wounded soldier, the two were forced to remain all night in a shell hole, during the hours before darkness and early the following morning they were targets for a German sniper, the Secretary succeeded in getting the wounded man back to the lines where he then proceeded to organize a party to go after the sniper. They not only silenced him, but rendered him unfit for any further action on earth. Mr. Banks returned to America with the sniper's rifle as a souvenir. His work was additionally courageous when it is considered that he was a non-combatant and not supposed to engage in hostilities. Had he been taken by the Germans he would not have been accorded the treatment of a prisoner of war, but undoubtedly would have been put to death. Were the records sufficiently complete at the present time to divulge them? Scores of examples of valorous conduct on the part of the Y workers, Red Cross and other non-combatants who ministered to Negro soldiers could be recounted. The work of all was of a noble character. It was accompanied by a heroic spirit and in many cases by great personal bravery and sacrifice. Chapter XXVII Negro in Army Personnel His mechanical ability required skilled at special trades Victory depends upon technical workers Vast range of occupations Negro makes good showing percentages of white and black figures for general service. In 1917 and 1918 our cause demanded speed. Every day that could be saved from the period of training meant a day gained in putting troops at the front. Half of the men in the Army must be skilled at special trades in order to perform their military duties to form the units quickly and at the same time supply them with the technical ability required. The Army had to avail itself of the trade knowledge and experience which the recruit brought with him from civil life. To discover this talent and assign it to those organizations where it was needed was the task of the Army personnel organization. The Army could hardly have turned the tide of victory if it had been forced to train from the beginning any large proportion of the technical workers it needed. Every combat division required 64 mechanical draftsmen, 63 electricians, 142 linemen, 10 cable splicers, 156 radio operators, 29 switchboard operators, 167 telegraphers, 360 telephone repairmen, 52 leather and canvas workers, 78 surveyors, 40 transitmen, 62 topographers, 132 auto mechanics. 128 machinists, 167 utility mechanics, 67 blacksmiths, 151 carpenters, 
691 chauffeurs auto and truck, 128 tractor operators and 122 truckmasters. Besides these specialists each division required among its enlisted men those familiar with 68 other trades, among the latter were dock builders, structural steel workers, bricklayers, teamsters, hostlers, wagoners, A's men, cooks, bakers, musicians, saddlers, crane operators, welders, rigging and cordage workers, stevedores and longshoremen. Add to these the specialists required in the technical units of engineers, ordnance, air service, signal corps, tanks, motor corps and all the services of supply, and the impossibility of increasing an army of 190.000 in March 1917, to an army of 3.665.000 in November, 1918, becomes apparent unless every skilled man was used where skill was demanded, to furnish tables showing the number of Negroes which the selective draft produced for the various occupations mentioned was at the compilement of this work not practicable. In many cases the figures for white and black had not been separated. The Army Personnel Organization did not get into the full swing of its work until well along in 1918. A good general idea of the percentages of white and black can be gained from the late drafts of that year. Figures for white drafts were not available with the exception of that of September 3rd but a very fair comparison may be made from the following table showing some occupations to which both whites and blacks were called. Take any of the three general service drafts made upon Negro selectives and it makes a splendid showing alongside the whites. Out of 100.000 men used as a basis for computation, it shows that among the Negro selectives an average of slightly over 25% were available for technical requirements, compared with slightly over 36% among the whites. It reveals a high number of mechanics and craftsmen among the race which in the minds of many has been regarded as made up almost entirely of unskilled laborers. Supply per 100.000 in late Negro drafts for general service. Compared with supply of white men in same occupations for the September 3rd draft, miscellaneous figures September 3rd, September 1st, September 25th upon draft occupation draft draft 59.826 men white mechanical engineer 738.25 blacksmith 393 area code 334-331-733 dock builder 15. Carpenter area code 862-571-670-2.157 Stockkeeper 161 area code 176-140-562 Structural steel worker 463 area code 326-351-334 Chauffeur 3.561-4.0033.3007.191 Euros Yard Heavy truck 1.304-1.356-987-2.061 Bricklayer 189 area code 99132-223 Hostler 3.351-1.433-2.062-3.559 Teamster or Wagoner 8.678-12.6609.534-13.691 Transit and Levelman 4247 Aisman Logger 1.192 1.759 1.423 1.827 Clerical Worker Area Code 603-395-324-4.159 Baker and Cook 4.129-3.1572.974-1.077 Musician 105 Area Code 17-115-160 Alto Horn 56-47-38-46 Baritone 21-21-15-16 
16 bass horn 35 21 18 16 clarinet 21 64 25 66 cornet 98 56 67 132 flute 21 529 saxophone 713 10 23 trap drum 217 197 146 trombone 42 69 40 67 bugler 14 13 12 24 saddler 26 3 12 crane operator hoistman 21 39 42 44 crane operator pile driver 13 12 7 crane operator shovel 13 5 30 oxyacetylene welder 21844 Rigger and Cordage Worker 497754 Stevedore Cargo Handler 161-3468-10 Longshoreman 652-664-651-15-26.413-27.708-23.544-38.473 Figures are for general service drafts and do not include the enlarged list of occupations for which both whites and negroes were selected. Illustration, 5 Sea Tugs Pushing Transport, France, into dock. Ship laden with members of New York's, Fighting 15th, 369th Infantry and Chicago's, Fighting 8th, 370th Infantry Negro Heroes from Battlefields of Europe. Chapter XXVII The Knockout Blow Woodrow Wilson. An estimate his place in history last of Great Trio Washington. Lincoln. Wilson upholds decency. Humanity. Liberty recapitulation of year 1918 closing incidents of war, when sufficient years had elapsed for the forming of a correct perspective, when the dissolving elements of time had swept away misunderstandings and the influences engendered by party belief and politically former opinions, Woodrow Wilson is destined to occupy a place in the temple of fame that all Americans may well be proud of. Let us analyze this and let us be fair about it, whatever may be our beliefs or affiliations. Washington gave us our freedom as a nation and started the first great wave of democracy. Probably, had some of us lived in Washington's time, we would have been opposed to him politically. Today he is our national hero and is reverenced by all free people of the earth, even by the nation which he defeated at arms. Lincoln preserved and cemented, albeit he was compelled to do it in blood, the democracy which Washington founded. He did infinitely more. He struck the shackles from four million human beings and gave the Negro of America his first opportunity to take a legitimate place in the world. Lincoln's service in abolishing slavery was not alone to the Negro. He elevated the souls of all men, for he ended the most degrading institution that Satan ever devised more degrading to the master who followed it, than to the poor subject he practiced it upon. Unitedly, we revere Lincoln. Yet there were those who were opposed to him and in every way hampered and sneered at his sublime consecration to the service of his country. It takes time to obtain the proper estimate of men. Enough light has already been cast on President Wilson and his life work to indicate his character and what the finished portrait of him will be. We see him at the beginning of the European conflict, before any of us could separate the tangled threads of rumor, of propaganda, of misrepresentation, to determine what it was all about before even he could comprehend it, a solitary and monetary figure, calling upon us to be neutral, to form no hasty judgments, we see him later in the role of peacemaker, upholding the principles of decency and honor, eventually as the record of atrocities and crimes against innocence enlarges, we see him pleading with the guilty to a return to the instincts of humanity, finally as the ultimate aim of the hunt is revealed as an assault upon the freedom of the world, after the most painstaking and patient efforts to avoid conflict, during which he was subjected to humiliation and insult, we see him grasp the sword, 
calling a united nation to arms in clarion tones, like some crusader of old, his shibboleth, decency, humanity, liberty, what followed, his action swept autocracy from its last great stronghold and made permanent the work which Washington began and upon which Lincoln builded so nobly, this of Woodrow Wilson, an estimate there can be no other thought, that will endure throughout history. In the earlier chapters are sketched the main events of the Great War up to the end of the year 1917, when the history of the Negro in the conflict became the theme. It remains to give an outline review of battles and happenings from the beginning of 1917 until the end of hostilities, culminating in the most remarkable armistice on record, a complete capitulation of the Teutonic forces and their allies, and a complete surrender by them of all implements and agencies for waging war. The terms of the armistice drastic in the extreme, were largely the work of Marshal Ferdinand Fulch, commander-in-chief of the Allied armies. Early in 1918 it became evident that England, France and Italy were rapidly approaching the limit of their manpower. It became necessary for America to hasten to the rescue. Training of men and officers in the various cantonments of America was intensified and as rapidly as they could be brought into condition they were shipped to France. The troop movement was a wonderful one and before the final closing of hostilities in November there were more than 2.000.000 American troops in Europe. The Navy was largely augmented, especially in the matter of destroyers, submarine chasers and lighter craft. Our troops saw little actual warfare during the first three months of the year. Americans took over a comparatively quiet sector of the French front near Toul, January 21st. Engagements of slight importance took place on January 30th and February 4th, the latter on a Lorraine sector which Americans were holding. On March 1st, they repulsed a heavy German raid in the Toul sector, killing many. On March 6th, the Americans were holding an 8-mile front alone. On March 21st the great German offensive between the Waz and the Scarp, a distance of 50 miles, began. General Haig's British forces were driven back about 20 miles. The French also lost much ground including a number of important towns. The Germans drove towards Amiens in an effort to separate the British and French armies. They had some successes in Flanders and on the French front, but were finally stopped. Their greatest advance measured 35 miles and resulted in the retaking of most of the territory lost in the Hindenburg retreat of the previous year. The Allies lost heavily in killed, wounded and prisoners, but the Germans being the aggressors, lost more. While the Great Battle was at its height, March 28th, the Allies reached an agreement to place all their forces from the Arctic Ocean to the Mediterranean, under one supreme command, the man chosen for the position being General Fulch of the French. On March 29th, General Pershing placed all the American forces at the disposal of General Fulch. The Germans began a new offensive against the British front April 8th and won a number of victories in the Lobas Canal region and elsewhere. The Battle of Seychelles. April 20th, was the Americans' first serious engagement with the Germans. The Germans captured the place but the Americans by a counter-attack recovered it. Another great offensive was started by the Germans, May 27th, resulting in the taking of the Kemendus Dames from the French and crossing the River Aisne. On the following day they crossed the Vizel River at Fismes. Here the Americans won their first notable victory by capturing the village of Kendini and taking 200 prisoners. They held this position against many subsequent counter-attacks. By the 31st the Germans had reached Chateau 3 and other points on the Marne, where they were halted by the French. They made a few gains during the first days of June. On June 6th, American Marines made a gallant attack, 
gaining two miles on a front two and one half miles long near Vuillelo Pottery. On the following day they assisted the French in important victories. In the second battle northwest of Chateau III, the Americans advanced nearly two and one half miles on a six mile front, taking three hundred prisoners. It was in these engagements that the Americans established themselves as fighters equal to any. On June 9th, the Germans began their fourth offensive, attacking between Montdidier and the River Was. They advanced about four miles, taking several villages. In the operations of the following day which gained them several villages, they claimed to have captured 8.000 French. This day the American Marines took the greater portion of Bellowood and completed the capture of the June 11th. The French at the same time defeated the Germans between Robespierre and saint Moore. There were other battles on the 12th and 13th, but on the 14th it became evident that the German offensive was a costly failure. The fighting from this time until the end of June was of a less serious nature. Although the Americans in the Bellow and Vox regions gave the Germans no rest, attacking them continually and taking prisoners, the Americans at this time were also engaged in an offensive in Italy. July 2nd. President Wilson announced there were January 1st 115 American soldiers in France. The 4th of July was celebrated in England, France and Italy as well as in the United States. On that day Americans assisted the Australians in taking the town of Hummel and many prisoners. On the 8th and 9th the French advanced in the region of Longpont and northwest of Compiègne. On the 12th they took Castel and other strong points near the west bank of the Avra River. July 14th. The French national holiday was observed in America, and by the American soldiers in France. The fifth and last phase of the great offensive which the Germans had started in March, began July 15, in an attack from Chateau 3 to Massignes, along a 65-mile front and crossing the Marne at several places. At Chateau 3 the Americans put up a strong resistance but the enemy by persistent efforts finally succeeded in getting a footing on the south bank. The battle continued east and west of Rhines with the Allies holding strongly and the Germans needing heavy losses, while the Germans were trying to force their way regardless of cost, in the direction of Calons and Aperney. General Foch was preparing a surprise in the Villers Cotterets Forest on the German right flank. In the large force collected for the surprise were some of the best French regiments together with the famed Foreign Legion, the Moroccan Regiment and other crack troops including Americans. On the morning of July 18th, a heavy blow, 